This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. We are going to be taking a very close look at what it feels like and what it's like to have paternal postpartum depression. Today, we are talking with Dr. David Levine, who is a pediatrician in New Jersey. He's going to be sharing with us what happened during the postpartum period of his first and second child. Having been blindsided by depression in the postpartum period, like everyone else, thinking that those kinds of things only happen to women or people who are carrying babies, He shares with us the struggle of realizing what was going on, having to talk to his wife about it, and ultimately finding help. And all of this while being a pediatrician. He completed his undergraduate degree at Rutgers College Medical School at NYU and his residency in pediatrics at Yale. So he's very well educated. And with that also comes a lot of pressure, especially as a pediatrician, to feel like you're supposed to know what to do. Dr. Levine is also now on the board of Postpartum Support International, where he works in professional outreach after having become a staunch advocate for father's mental health after suffering from postpartum depression and anxiety after the birth of his two children. We're going to be hearing his story, and he is sharing with us some really vulnerable parts of what happened for him. And for people who are not quite used to hearing about what can happen for people in the postpartum period, and specifically dads who often experience agitation and anger, some of the things that he experienced are hard to hear and for sure were for him hard to experience. So while we are going to be hearing about some of his journey, he has also written a book about his experience and is in the process of finding an agent and a publisher. So that book is not quite available to everyone yet. But certainly, if any of you who are compelled and inspired by his story know of anyone who can help him in his journey to get this book out there, that would be great. More fathers need to know that they're not alone. And Dr. Levine is really putting himself out there and having to deal with quite a lot of pushback from people who don't believe that 
paternal postpartum depression is real, but it is very real. I'm very honored and excited to have him here with us. So let's hear from Dr. Levine. Welcome, Dr. Levine. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Really, really grateful for you to come on and talk about this today and really give our listeners and people just some good, solid information and understanding about what can happen for dads. I'm grateful that you're going to share with us part of your personal story. So uh, yeah, start wherever you'd like. Again, thank you for having me on. It's it's a topic that I feel like in the postpartum mental health realm, still a lot of people don't realize that uh, that the fathers can can suffer as well. And I, I certainly did not know that when my wife was pregnant and gave birth to our first child, uh, which was roughly seven years ago. In New Jersey, we, by law, we have to screen parents, uh, screen moms for postpartum depression. But we were never told to screen fathers. And in my medical training, we knew or spoke, we knew nothing about, we knew very little about mental health in the postpartum period anyway, mm -hmm. um, let alone whether as a pediatrician, we had anything to do with that. But in New Jersey, the, uh, one, of the, one of the higher ranking politicians, uh, his wife became uh, very vocal about it. Richard Cody's wife, I forget her, her name. She started this and eventually it became law. But the thing was to question it was really just to ask the parent, the mother, how you're doing? Right. Like it wasn't anything formalized. We were not meant to do that. I didn't learn about the Edinburgh screening until much later. Sure, so sure. when my wife was pregnant, she was feeling good. I was feeling good. When she gave birth, the baby came out on time. Everything looked fine. There was really, I had no inklings whatsoever that something was going to end up happening to me. Mm -hmm. But within the first couple of days, I just started to get this feeling that there was something wrong with him. He cried a lot. Now, my memory is what it is that seven years later, but I just felt like he cried a lot more than other babies and a way more than I was expecting. Mm -hmm. And even though I was not his pediatrician, my, a friend of mine who was his pediatrician would just tell me, you know, Dave, he's, he's okay, he's doing well, that kind of stuff. I still just got this idea in my head that because he wasn't calming down, something was wrong with him. Mm -hmm. And it became more and more unshakable as time went on. And some people have said, well, that's just because you're a pediatrician. And I don't negate that, that part of my experience was certainly clouded not only by the fact that I was a pediatrician, but the fact that I probably also deep down felt that as a pediatrician, I should be able to be better at this than an mm -hmm. average father. Right. Um, right. That I should know things that others don't. So therefore I should be better. Even though I knew kind of on, a, on an intellectual level, I knew that that, wasn't the, that, that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. That just because it's just like, just because you're a teacher doesn't mean your kids end up being super smart because you can teach <laughs> right. them. So just because I'm a pediatrician doesn't mean that my kids don't get sick or that I can fix every problem. I can't fix everybody, every kid's problem. So why should I be able to fix my own? Right. But anyway, so my wife had a little bit of the baby blues, which, you know, are common. And during that time, I actually, so the first couple of days I felt one way. And then my wife started experiencing the blues, the, mm -hmm. the breastfeeding wasn't going so hot. And I snapped out of my funk and kind of was like, all right, I'm here for you. What do we got to do? We had to get through mm -hmm. the bris and everything with my son. And then once the breastfeeding and the feeding situation figured itself out, then it kind of went back to me. And it really started to get bad. I took two weeks off 
I timed it as best as I could, hoping that the baby would come on time. So when my son was roughly two to three weeks of age, I was home with him and my wife trying to help out. Mm-hmm. And that's where things really started to spiral. Um, I was getting, I would get more and more aggravated with his cries. I would get more frustrated by having to take care of him. My wife and I had come up with a plan of attack for the sleeping where we would alternate. We would take shifts, but my wife actually went to sleep for the early shift and I, and I stayed awake when I shouldn't have. So I wasn't going to bed. She was, she would feed him at nine and go to bed. I would stay up and I would, I should have gone to bed, but I didn't, I stayed up with him. And I waited till 12 o'clock and I fed him at 12. But, you know, when you have a newborn, they don't just feed and go right back to bed. Right. So that would end up taking like an hour and change. So I wasn't going to bed till after one. And then he would wake up around three. My wife would get him and I would get up at six. But I wasn't getting much more than four to five hours a night of sleep, which we know is eventually going to catch up to us. So Right, right. And that, that wasn't like solid four to five hours. No. Consecutive, no. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. It, it was like passing out of exhaustion. Yeah. And then being woken up from the cries, going back to sleep, and then being woken up. But now I actually have to get up and, and get them. Right. And so that was probably, that was starting to wear on me, not being at work. And I just, I'm there and I'm in the thick of it every day. And I'm just getting more and more frustrated. And I'm getting really, really angry mm-hmm. at the child. Like yeah. I'm really getting pissed off at him. I'm starting to take this all very personally. Mm -hmm. I feel like he is rejecting me. And that sense of rejection ends up developing into basically a a hatred for him. Not my wife, but for him. And every day I put him down. I I denigrate him in front of my wife. And she's just like, David, he's not, that's not what's going on. It's going to be okay. But, you know, life goes on. People come over. I put on a happy face. I'm happy to see people. Once in a blue moon, um, our, my in-laws or my parents will come over to watch him for a few hours so my wife and I can run some errands, you know, just to get out of the house, that kind of stuff. I go back to work weeks four, five, and six, and I'm st- but now I'm going to work, I'm working mm-hmm. full-time, and I'm still not sleeping. I'm still doing the same stuff at night, wow. and it's just getting worse and worse. Right. At some point during this time, I Googled postpartum depression in fathers. And I don't, and I didn't find very much. I found this one summary article that was called Sad Dads. Mm -hmm. And I read a bunch of stuff there. And I'm like, oh my God, I am screwing up my kid because I'm reading about how if I'm depressed, then I'm going to make, I'm going to give him mental health problems and all these things. I'm just, I'm not even in the right frame of mind to be reading this. I cannot read this objectively at all. Right. And I, but, and I start, looking up like support groups for, 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 for fathers and for new parents, but they're all in the middle of the day and they're all for moms. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel like this is a good fit for me at all. Right. But the one key thing that I do find is the author, Michael Lewis, uh, who wrote Moneyball and The Big Short and a bunch of those books. He wrote a bunch of essays when on and off when his wife was pregnant and he collected them into a book. And I found a quote which basically said something on the lines of that a mother's love is instinctive, but a father's love is, is learned. Hmm. And I felt like, oh my God, he gets it. Like, that's, that's what I'm feeling. So I got his book and it wasn't really about, it wasn't about that. That just was, there were like two bits of information in there of 
him saying that and then making another reference to how is it that months ago I would have, I would have gladly just let you cry and, and, and would never have come to you. And now I will, I will throw myself in front of a car to protect you. Like, how do, how did I go from point A to point B? Right. But the book wasn't about the struggles of a new father. It was really just sort of a jokey, you know, this is kind of my travails, that kind of stuff. So it, it helped a little bit, but it wasn't enough. And I just started getting worse and worse and worse, except I didn't realize how bad I was getting. And what I mean by that is at a certain point, I started having, I don't know if visions is really the right word, but I started having these like images popping up in my head of progressively doing more and more violent things to my child. Yeah. And the aftermath of having done some of those things and what that would mean for my family and for my life. Yeah. So pretty but graphic. I, uh, oh, very graphic, graphic, detailed. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very, very vivid, increasingly vivid and very, very graphic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just pushed it all down. I was like, whatever. It, it would come about during times when I was at my most stressed, but then it would disappear. But it was almost like a, it was like a horror movie where you never know what's going to happen next. And I don't even know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. I'm watching the story unfold and it just keeps getting worse and worse. And did it feel to you in those moments like scary or terrifying? Yeah, or, because uh, I couldn't, it was, it was more that I didn't want to do it, but there was a part of me that was like, this is going to happen. And if this happens, it's, it's all over. Like everything is over. Yeah. Your life is over if this happens. Right. And I tried the best I could to just not acknowledge it and just to try to, to move past it. But it was, you know, it was, it was scary. And it, it wasn't until uh, probably a year or two later that I, mm-hmm. I started talking more about it to, to, a, to a doctor. And they said, wow, that's, that's, that was not good. Mm-hmm. Like, it was very bad that you got that far. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. 
It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. When those thoughts were happening, did anybody know what was going on? No, No, not your wife either? No, my wife did not know anything about those thoughts until, so I I was on the the old Charlie Rose show when my son was about a year and a half, year and three quarters. Mm -hmm. And in order to be on that program, I had to be more upfront with her about what I would say. Yeah. So that was the first time that she, she she knew about the depression because I eventually started seeing somebody for it, Mm -hmm. but she didn't know the extent of what was actually going through my mind at the time. And it, it hurt her more so that I didn't feel that I could tell her about it. Mm-hmm. Then it was what I was feeling. Got it. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's really important because I think a lot of fathers don't talk about it because we are scared of what our wives will think of us. Mm-hmm. And I fell right into that trap. Sure. I mean, what you can barely figure out what to do with these thoughts, let alone how are you going to tell somebody? They're so terrifying to you. How could you tell somebody about right. it? Yeah. So things just keep getting worse and worse. Um, I do end up seeing my, my regular doctor for a physical, and I mentioned it to him, and he gave me Zoloft, which I took for like a week, and I, I threw him out. I, I wasn't sure if I was just feeling lightheaded because I was just not feeling good about everything, or it was a side effect of the medication. I never really gave the medication a chance to work. Mm. And that was probably just me being a pig-headed physician that I'm not sick enough. I'm not sick enough to need these things. Sure. Yeah. And then I hit rock bottom at at week seven, we were supposed to go to the movies and go run some errands that weekend. And my, my parents or my in-laws were supposed to come. And one morning when I left for work, I yelled at the kid again and I was so pissed and fed up. And I called my wife on the way to the office to just make sure that I hadn't really screwed up this time. Mm -hmm. And I got a bad connection and I thought I heard her say, no, we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just broke down crying. I, I just, yeah. I was bawling my eyes out in the car, driving to work. She starts crying and she's like, you, you, you need, you need to get help. And the group that I was working with at the time, they had behavioral health and I went on their website and I found somebody who, who had a specialty in postpartum depression. I could find nobody that was paternal postpartum depression, but I'm like, all right, this is, this is the best I got. Like, this is somebody who may be able to help me. And I reached out and I got an appointment the following week. I told my wife, we need a baby nurse. I, I, I have to get some sleep. I can't deal with this anymore. So she got, on, she, got, she got us a baby nurse that started the following Monday. I, was, I started seeing the therapist on that Tuesday. And it was a very long road until... I started to feel better. I mean, part of it was I was sleeping, so that helped. Part of it was I was amenable to the therapy. I had worked with a therapist. I never was di- I'd never had a diagnosed mental health problem in my life, but I worked with therapists before because I went through a divorce and I was I was in my residency doing that, and, and that was mm. really difficult. And That's I, so stressful. I needed some help. And then in just getting back into the dating world and getting you know, all the problems that dating causes. I was talking to somebody to try to help me work through some of that, but nothing along the lines of this, never a depression or um, any disorder that wasn't anything like I had just as much anxiety as any other Jewish guy probably does, but nothing else. Like I was completely blindsided by all of this. 
And, but I, since I'd had some experience working with a therapist before, I was willing to talk about and at least grudgingly acknowledge that maybe I wasn't thinking straight. Right. That's, that's a big step. It's a yeah. hard step to get to. It is. And it's, yeah, it, it, is a really, it is a really big step. And as I've done some reading about it more, I realized that there's, that I, I, was, I was very lucky that I was in the situation I was in to be able to get this help. And that many fathers, most fathers, aren't even close to being in this position, and therefore they don't get help, and mm-hmm. the ramifications of that are are very are really terrible. So I get, you know, it turns out my son is what's called a fourth trimester baby, mm-hmm. where what that means is that there's a group of kids. This was Dr. Harvey Karp. He kind of coined this phrase in his book, The Happiest Baby on the Block, where you just have some of these babies that are not colicky, like they just cry a lot more than other babies do. Mm-hmm. And then they get to like that 10, 12 week mark. And a lot of them, they just snap out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what my son did. Because I should also state that when I was going through all this, there were two main things that were going through my head. Mm-hmm. One was, if I cannot survive a two week old or a two month old, I am not going to survive a two year old. Like, oh, right, this right. is only going to get worse. And I was right. doing nothing but, you know, fortune telling about how much worse and terrible my life was going to get yeah. because if he, if he's this terrible now, just think about how terrible he's going to be later. But also I took paternal, I took paternal leave. Mm-hmm. So my wife was going to be off for three months. I took a month off to be at home with him before he went to daycare and it was just going to be me and him. And at this point I am terrified that yeah. if I do not get help and I am sitting here with a baby who is not going to stop crying and there's nobody here to buffer me, I'm, I'm going to snap. Yeah, that's so, so all scary. these things are all these things are just, you know, coming to a head when that eight week mark hits and I start to see a therapist. So luckily for all parties involved, yeah. my, you know, my son gets on a better sleep schedule. So he's sleeping. I'm sleeping. He starts to wake up from his fugue state and starts mm-hmm. to cry when he's hungry or tired or he pooped. And otherwise, he's a fairly calm baby. Mm-hmm. And the therapy is starting to kick in. So when my wife does hand the child off to me for what turned out to be three weeks, because she had an extra week of maternity leave, I had a little bit more confidence. And during those three weeks, I built that confidence. I really started to feel like I was capable of doing this now. And by the end of those three weeks, I was taking him to my parents. I was going out to lunch with him and some Mm -hmm. and a friend. I felt like we... We were vibing. And mm-hmm. when it came time to send him to daycare and drop him off there, like I wasn't hundred percent better. Like I would still snap and I would still get super angry mm-hmm. when he wouldn't just do what I needed him to do at any moment. Um, but the, the really negative thoughts and the real negative outlook that I had started to ebb away. And I, I stopped therapy by around when, when he was around six months old, the next six months were better than the first six months, but yeah. to, to to kind of wrap it all up, I'll just say that like at my, my son was born a couple of days before my anniversary and for my, he was born right before my first anniversary. So by my second anniversary, when my wife and I went out to dinner, she cried most of that dinner Mm. because that year had been so terrible and it was mostly because she didn't understand it all. So at that point it was just this outpouring of, 
why were you so mean? And why, mm. why did it have to be this terrible? And she was angry at me and she had every right to be. I did not make life great for her, even though at one, he seemed to be good and all that other stuff. But, you know, I, I, was, I was not the greatest husband during that, that year. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Levine, for sharing that with us. I know, and you know, that most people don't get to hear a father's perspective and their journey through this, but I believe that so many people will be able to hear this and resonate with it and see this in their partners or in themselves. And I just can't thank you enough for sharing that. You're you're welcome. I mean, like, that's not even like, I I wish that was like the end of the journey. (laughs) Right. Because so after that, I just kind of put it aside and I, I didn't know what to do with it. I just was like, all right, this is a thing that I went through. And then, you know, I would get these kind of like random emails or phone calls of, you know, like I mentioned, Charlie Rose. And then mm-hmm. I, I end up speaking to Wendy Davis at Postpartum Support. And she's like, we saw your talk there. We would love to have you come to our, our yearly conference, which was in San Diego. That's where I met uh, Dr. Danny Singley. And I was able to kind of talk, him and I did like an interview style talk at the conference as a, mm-hmm. uh, as a keynote to kind of, you know, because again, they, PSI at the time was starting to branch out and say, look, this is not just about moms, this is about entire families. Yeah. And we, we can't ignore the other, the elephant in the room, which is the father. And so I ended up joining the board of PSI uh, about a year after that. And then I had my second child who was born three years ago. And the third, so when she comes, which was not the easiest to get pregnant and to, to have the second child, I wasn't really nervous or anxious during that, but I knew it was a possibility. And I considered like preemptively starting therapy, but I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I can, I'm going to get this. I had a baby nurse from the start, so I'm going to sleep. I'm not going to fall into those, those pitfalls again. But as you know very well, you could prepare yourself and you could still have it in a subsequent pregnancy. And I did. It wasn't as bad. I definitely didn't have the negative thoughts that I had the first time around. But unfortunately, the second time around, I took my, my verbal aggression out on my wife as opposed mm-hmm. to just the baby because now I was blaming her for this. The first time around, we didn't know. Yeah, second yeah. time around, it was, you did this to me. You're the one who wanted this. You knew this was going to happen mm-hmm. and you did it anyway. And I was, I was very mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm not proud of this. But I took a lot of it out on her and I was very angry with her. I started therapy much quicker. And at one point, I just remember vividly just feeling like, and I've said this to, to people before, it takes a lot of energy to stay pissed off yeah. from morning yeah. till night. Like it's very tiring to carry this much of a chip on your shoulder all the time. Yeah. And at some point, I just got, I just got tired of it. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I sat down on the couch one night with her and I just said, I was sorry and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that this happened again. And she cried and she was angry at me this time. Like she was just like, you know, you really hurt me. Cause I, I did something that no spouse should ever do. And that was, I rejected her. Like mm-hmm. she would reach out to try to give me a hug or to hold me and to try to embrace me. And I would push her away. I was like, I want mm-hmm. nothing to do with you. And I mean, that just, I mean, it speaks really to how wonderful my wife is that mm-hmm. Despite all of this, she understood that this was not me, that right. this, was, this was the illness, and she believed that I could get better, and I did. I got better, and things went much smoother the second time around, but it's just, what I mean by that is, I understood it, I got help quicker, yeah. it lasted yeah. less time, but I still, it still hit me, and it still, you know, I don't know if it damaged my marriage, but it, it didn't make life great for the first 
four to six months. But after that, things got much, much better. And subsequently, from my reading and everything, I've realized that I realized that I, I really did, as much as I brush up against what we all know as traditional masculinity, I, I'm a man just like any other man, but I, you know, I've always kind of considered myself to be a little different. Like, I'm not some gigantic you know, muscular guy. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not an arrogant or like physically aggressive person. But nonetheless, I feel that as I've read more and more, I did fall into a lot of the traps of what of traditional masculinity. And a lot of those traps are what stopped me from from getting help and from being able to open up and, and not necessarily prevent it from happening, but to maybe have prevented it from getting as bad as it did. Sure. What would you say were the, the main barriers, those traps you were speaking of? What were the things that made it the hardest? So one of the, one of the hallmarks of traditional masculinity is that men are supposed to be self-reliant and the strong and silent type. And, and a lot of men do not have social supports the way that women do. Right. So I did not have friends that I could really, con- I had friends, but I didn't have friends I could, that I felt I could confide in. That's just not the way we spoke. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know how it would come across if I was like, guys, who, because I was the last of all my friends to have kids. I didn't feel like I could just be like, guys, I'm really hating this. Like, did you hate this? Like, I, I couldn't put, I couldn't let those words come out of my mouth. Yeah. But also the, and I, as I mentioned, when my wife was having the baby blues. So when she was having the baby blues, I snapped right out of it. And I was like, all right, I need to be here for you. Like, mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm the man. I'm going to mm-hmm. be the rock. I'm going to be here to help you. I'm going to be able to diagnose this right. and, and, and fix it. And then when that wasn't the problem anymore, I feel, realized I'm not the rock anymore. Like I'm falling apart. Like mm-hmm. I'm not doing this. And even though I, I prided myself on being able to speak better than I think many men know how to, and I, that's circumstances. Like I was just as silent about how I felt about everything until my first marriage collapsed. And I had no choice after I made a conscious decision after that. I have to talk more. I, I can't keep all this crap inside. Right. But like, so when in a relationship with an adult, I was able to do that, but I had, you know, that was like one area. So relationships, I could be open, but deep down emotional things like this, I was unprepared for. I, I had no practice with this. Right, right. And that's actually, so, the, so the, 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 the feeling that I have to be there, that I have to be, that I should be able to do this on my own, the shame of it. Mm. Those are all these traditional pitfalls. There's all these pitfalls of traditional masculinity that stops many men from seeking help. And then on top of that was the validation point. And the reason I mentioned the Michael Lewis part is that when he wrote that, that was validation that I wasn't the only person who felt this. Right. And that there is, but without validation, it's also what words do you use to even describe how you're feeling? Like a woman can say, I'm, I'm very fearful and I'm sad and I'm scared. And I think I'm suffering from postpartum depression, but a father going through the same thing doesn't know that that's a thing. Right. And if they do, they know that it's about women. And so how can I have this? Like, how is it that I didn't carry the child? I'm not nursing the child. I'm not the mother. And yet I'm feeling something that she doesn't seem to be feeling. Right. Then the self-reliance kicks in and then the shame kicks in. And if you feel ashamed, you're not saying anything to anybody. Right. It's so silencing. It's Oh, incredibly. Yeah. I learned later from people like Dr. Singley about male masked depression. And Mm. what I realized is, although I don't have a medical, I don't have medical 
training in, in psychiatry, I still went through psychiatry in, in medical school, right. that a lot, at least I believe that a lot of the way that we describe mental illness is for better or worse through the female guise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like hysteria, after all, it's a derivative, I think it's a Greek derivative for uterus, like hysteria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just the, just hysteria, the hysterical woman crying and all these things. I feel like we just, when, when we see a woman experiencing in specifically postpartum depression, we have an idea of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. They're crying, they're tearful, they're scared. They're expressing this to their girlfriends or maybe even to their spouses, all these different things. But we don't have the same thing for men right. because the way a man experiences anxiety and depression doesn't look the same. And in fact, it looks very similar to all the things that I experienced. Right. The anger, the aggression, the, I mean, I'm not, I don't drink or do drugs or anything, but a lot of people do, if they drink, they drink more. Mm-hmm. If right. they work long hours, they work longer hours. Yeah. You know, I didn't really escape to the man cave or work later, like, but I, I know of fathers that, that have done those things. Sure, and sure. When, but when someone describes that, if, if a woman were to describe that, no one would be like, oh my God, I think your husband's depressed. They'd be like, oh, he's just going, you know, it's just, they're just adjusting to being a father. And, you know, that happens. I've heard things like that before. But they, they don't make the connection that this is what it looks like in us. Yeah, um, I will. I will also add to that that sometimes it's, it's seen as, well, he's just being mean. He's a jerk. I don't, you know. Um, yes. and, and like, you know, like you said before, disparaging is a good word. Spouses who don't get it will just be, you know, putting their husbands down. Right. And they don't realize because they're either because traditional masculinity rubs off on women too, you know. And so it's like, oh, your husband, like your my, my best friend's husband felt the same way. And yeah, I mean, but their marriage isn't really that good anyway. And but mm-hmm. mine's much better. And so you find ways to rationalize the, the behavior as opposed right. to rationalizing or as opposed to realizing that this is a person who is suffering mm-hmm. and they need help, but how do I get them that help? Right. And that's why I'm saying like my wife never in a million years believed that or felt, I shouldn't say believed, felt that what I was, what was happening to me was as serious as it was mm-hmm. because she'd never heard of it. She never thought of it. Yeah. She's just like, all right, this is just how he's adjusting to this and, mm-hmm. you know, I'll get over it. Right. But no, I mean, you, yes, you, you found your way through it eventually, but it's maybe that's part of the, how you said it rubs off on women that a traditional masculinity is that he'll like, he'll be fine. Yeah. He'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so in addition to this like aggression or, or angst or anger that you were describing, what are other things that you know that show up for fathers um, who are experiencing postpartum depression? A lot of it is withdrawal from the family and unfortunately also, you know, physical violence. There's an increase in domestic violence, unfortunately, after the birth of a child. But I found a study from, I think it was Sweden, where they actually found that there was an increase in calls to domestic violence hotlines after the birth of a child, even from families where there had been no previous domestic violence. Mm, so that's significant. Yes. That this, that as part of, and again, these are not people that were pinpointed as having postpartum depression mm-hmm. because I don't think that they were even, it was even thought of. Right. But when you have a family that's suffering from intimate partner violence that had, that never had that before, 
Mm-hmm. It's, you know, something has snapped in that guy when that child was born. And it doesn't just happen like a couple of days after the baby comes home. It right. happens right. after weeks and weeks and weeks. And mm-hmm. that's why I say like my, what happened to me, although it has at least still has, seems to have a decent ending. In many cases, it doesn't have a very happy ending. Right. Because it either ends in a, in, in a, in a couple that stays together, but they're miserable. It ends in divorce, mm-hmm. or in rare cases, it ends in the death of, of a spouse or of the child of the child. And there's not a lot of good information about infanticide from perpetrated specifically by fathers in the context of postpartum depression. Right. But I'm willing to wager that many of the men that did what they did to their own flesh and blood were likely severely depressed, if not psychotic, when it happened. Right. Uh, Uh, I don't see how it could only happen to mothers and not happen to fathers. Yes, absolutely. This is why we need to be looking at it more closely. I mean, all of the points that you are bringing up and and sharing are so true. Right. So to to your point, you know, when we talk about fathers having postpartum depression, there's often like a pushback. Because people do believe that it's only women or birthing people who are going to be experiencing this because it's um, for whatever, for many reasons associated with hormones and people Mm -hmm. think it's only associated with hormones and caring of the child. So there is a lot of pushback, right? What have you seen from people who are just like, you know, don't believe that this is possible? Right. That is another big stumbling block for fathers to get help. Either the fear that somebody like a friend or a family member will denigrate them for feeling this way, mm-hmm. and also just looking to society. Um, although it should be said that in 2020, you can find a lot of good information on paternal postpartum depression that can validate how, like what a father is experiencing mm-hmm. much more than, than seven years ago when I was looking it up. So what you won't find, unfortunately, are a lot of good comments about things. Like you'll find articles that take it seriously. But then, for instance, so I said I was on Charlie Rose. I mm-hmm. was on, whatchamacallit, I was on the old Megan Kelly Today show uh, on Channel 4. Um, I was interviewed for that about postpartum depression because a, um, an article had come out uh, about two years ago saying that postpartum depression in fathers is at least one in 10, but may actually be closer to one in seven, which is the numbers associated with women. Mm-hmm. So that made, that kind of jumped from the medical press to the lay press. Right. And they started to want to talk a little bit about that. And if you just look at the comment section in the video that's on YouTube, as well as I did something for ATTN a couple of years before that, and there was a bunch of fathers that sent in like, a little bit of a, like a video about how they, you know, what went on, things like that. The comments pages are filled with men and women just piling on men with all the things, all the words that you could imagine, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of, you know, just a bunch of wusses and these are not men and just deriding the fact that a man is trying to say that they are suffering from something that only a woman can suffer from. Right. And it's these mm-hmm. myths Again, I think, I mean, part of it, and I I may be mistaken, but I think part of it definitely is 
sexism. It's, mm-hmm. oh, this is a women's thing. And this is not a men's thing. Mm-hmm. Only women can somehow suffer from some of these diseases. But there's also just the lack of education that, right. yes, hormones do probably play some role. But guess what? Men have the same hormones. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, body changes. Yeah, we don't carry the baby. But there's actually a couple of good articles out there that men's bodies change too. And we sometimes put on quite a lot of weight while our, our wives are, are pregnant. And that it doesn't have to do with just the physical carrying and birth of a child. It's much, much more than that. Not every woman who suffers from it has some hormonal derangement. It's a lot of different factors altogether right. that are not unique to a specific sex. Mm-hmm. But we as, I mean, look, the United States stigmatizes mental illness left and right anyway. So, right, right. you know, why should it stop? Why, why shouldn't it extend to this? It's even worse when it comes to men. And in fact, one of the things I found that this is the, the, the data is a little old because it's hard. There's just, and you might know this better than many. There's not a lot of research that's done into this, which is something that really needs to change because, Definitely. you know, male depression by itself has economic costs in the billions. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows how many of those men that are depressed might, it, are, are, may, it may have started with the birth of their child. It may have started as an untreated postpartum depression that just spiraled and never got better. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And I don't think a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, so JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association back in May of 2010, had a study that said that 10.4% of fathers experience postpartum mental health problems with the highest being in the uh, three to six month range. Mm-hmm. The US alone has that postpartum depression rate, it was believed to be 14.1%. Internationally, though, it's 8.2%. So that's Mm. where the 10.4% comes from. And the annual rate of adult male depression at the time was estimated to be about 5%. So it was double, almost like across the world, it's double the annual rate of male depression, of adult male depression. Mm -hmm. It's higher in the United States than it is in other countries. And part of that is just the way our culture stigmatizes and labels and refuses to fund or acknowledge the costs of mental health. We will, we will throw money at any and every physical <laughs> ailment and disease out there, especially if somebody famous gets it, but we will not do that for mental health. Women at least have the benefit, if you want to call it that, of the Brooke Shields and the Chrissy Teagans and the Reese Witherspoons and the Serena Williams of the world mm-hmm. who have come out and spoken about their postpartum depression. So at least now women know, okay, I've heard of this and I know somebody, I I know of famous people who've suffered from this. That makes it easier for me to talk about it. Men have no such, men have no such thing. And in fact, for anybody listening to this, whenever it it, it goes out on the, in the New York times book review on Sunday, it would have been the 15th. um, There was a review of a book, by an author named Catherine Cho, C-H-O, um, called Inferno. And it's a book about her experiences with postpartum psychosis. And I do not believe that there has been any books, at least that I've heard of, that have been published about a woman's experiences going through this. I know that there have been some one-woman shows about it. I know other women who've suffered through this who, have, who are attempting to have their stories told. Um, but it's a really big deal for a woman to be able to speak about this and for the New York Times to devote an actual Sunday review right. to 
this only helps to destigmatize these diseases. And when you do that, you just make sure it just allows women to get help. It educates their spouses so the spouses can recognize this and get them help and not poo poo it. And what men, I think, desperately need is the same thing is somebody or someone out there to be able to say, hey, this is a real thing and this can happen. A couple of men have come out in the sports world to talk about their issues with depression. And most of that's been met with some positive press, but it's still, they get a lot of negative crap for it too. Yeah, true. But nothing in the postpartum, not in that specifically related to fathers. And I think there's an extra stigma when you're a dad suffering through something versus when you're not a dad. Right, especially when it's you're a dad suffering with something that's as seen as a female problem uh, right. only. There, there's so many layers and barriers oh. of, of stigma um, so surrounding this. And you talking about this is super important. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility and joy. I know that you're working on a project right now and I want to get to that in just a moment, but before we do, can you give some pointers or some ideas that you have about how how can we catch this better? How should we be screening? Um, How can we help? Yes. So this is where I feel like I, I can give something that other fathers can't because I'm also a physician and a pediatrician and people can disagree with me and and that's fine. But I really do feel that a lot of this falls on pediatricians. We 
are the only doctors, the only healthcare professionals who consistently see new parents in those first few months. Mm-hmm. And as I said, in New Jersey, we are by law supposed to screen, but we aren't necessarily told how to screen. And I don't think that that's a, the other 49 states, I don't know what their laws or their rules are, but there is a screening tool. It is not specific to men, unfortunately. So some of the answers have to be taken a little bit differently, Uh, but there's the Edinburgh screen that we give to mothers. And I believe that should be given to fathers. I believe very strongly that, so we'll start pre pre birth Mm -hmm. when parents go to, um, when women go to their OBs, I know most dads don't go with them. I know I didn't go after the first couple of visits, mostly because my wife did not want me to know how much she weighed. Um, <laughs> that you that that OBGYNs have to not only check in with their patients, but they have to inform those mothers that hey, just so you know, check on dad. How's mm-hmm. he doing? Mm-hmm. Make sure that he knows that if he's feeling a certain way, that that can happen and that they can get help. Right. When that child, when they, if those two parents go to a Lamaze class or an early, you know, a birthing class, or they go to the hospital for a tour and they go over kind of like how everything's going to work. Education has to be in there. You don't have to like, you know, bowl them over with data. It's just, Hey guys, just so you know, we're going to spend five minutes talking about postpartum mental health issues that they can affect both partners, whether you're both women, you're both men or you're a man and a woman. Even if you're adopting, this can happen to you. Mm -hmm. You need to start to destigmatize it by educating about it. Then when you get, when the baby is born, and I have seen this with my own eyes, doctors who go in have to physically acknowledge that the father is there. Too many times they focus only on the mother. When pediatricians go in, we are usually only asking the mother how they're doing and about the baby, and we ignore the father. Mm -hmm. If we don't even acknowledge dad being there, what signal does that send to them? Right. It sends to them that they don't matter. It's really, it's mom, that I'm just kind of here. Right. When the parents come in for those first few visits, now I can speak from my experience, and it's part of the reason I, I, I appreciate you allowing me to come on, and it's the reason that my wife lets me talk about things like this, because people have to know about this, and I, people can't say, well, I never heard of it. Well, if you hear this interview, mm-hmm. you have no excuse anymore. You've now right. you've heard a father talk about this. So- you can say to somebody, it doesn't have to be like, oh yeah, I know this guy, he's a pediatrician. Be like, I heard this interview. I know that this can happen and I want to make sure it doesn't happen to you. I want to make sure you know about it. So I'll tell the parents, this can happen. I know that it, it, it does take some time. I don't spend a lot of time doing it, but I tell them this could happen to both of you. I look them both in the eye. It could happen mm-hmm. to you. It can happen to you. Mm-hmm. When they come in, they're both given the screening to, 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 to do. I don't, now there's billing issues and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, it doesn't take long to score it and then just say, okay, everything seems to be going okay. And if the numbers are rising and you're keeping track of it, you can still follow this thing up. The yeah. OBGYN sees a mother once or twice after the baby's born, that's it. And the father's not usually there. Most men don't have internists. They don't have a regular doctor, especially when they're younger and have right. become a father. So pediatricians, my group are the ones who are the front line to be able to help with this. And with groups like postpartum support out there, there simply is zero excuse now. Like, what am I going to do? Well, call the PSI line. Okay. Mm-hmm. On PSI, you can get a psychiatrist on the phone. You can give that information. You can find local information in wherever you live to give a piece of paper to that mother and that father and say, look, 
I really think that you should look out, you should, you should make a call. Now you can't make them make the call, but you are, but you're doing two of the things that research has shown men need. You're mm-hmm. validating what's happening to them and you are educating them. And like you said, like I was able to get help. I was able to get help because part of it was I was in the right situation and I was mm-hmm. the right person to be able to do that. But I should not be fortunate like that. It shouldn't, I'm not special. And I need, and fathers need to know that any, that not only can it happen to anybody, but you can get help. Yes. yes you have to make that mental leap to say, I want to pick up the phone and make this call. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you, like, I have a good friend right now who is, he's not postpartum, but he's going through some, you know, try, a lot of trying times because of his job and coronavirus and everything. Mm-hmm. And he is scared to make the call yeah. to get help, even though he knows he needs it. Yeah. And that's the way a lot of men feel. But if they, are, if they have a, a spouse who is caring and not just saying things like, just make the damn call already. It's more, right, right. let me help you. I will make the call for you. But, you know, nudging the man gently to say, look, I'm here for you. I love mm-hmm. you. It's going to be okay. We're in this together. But you really, you need to get this help. Sometimes men need to have that appointment made for them and be driven to the damn appointment because <laughs> we just will find ways to not do it. And a lot of men look for information outside of the traditional means mm-hmm. and they need to hear these stories. They need to be able to grasp onto something which says, I'm not alone. What I'm feeling is not uh, is not because I'm less of a man, that that's not what this is all about, that I'm, I'm not right. the screw up, right. that this is something more profound than that and that I can get help because actually part of being a man is knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, getting help so that you can be a better father, so you can be a better spouse and you, you can avoid the damage that can happen for not getting help. Absolutely. So super important. I mean, those are all just phenomenal tips. And to your point too, this is not rocket science. I mean, it's, it, it might take a little bit of effort and energy to do the screening and to be that support person and to help nudge them, but it, it's not really that complicated. You, we just have to, you know, if we're the support people, we are kind of getting over our stuff to, to, to help step in and, and, and be there for them. But, you know, the systems issue is a big one and yes. in terms of screening and medical systems and whatnot. But um, having stories like yours is part of pushing that forward, hearing it from you, hearing that you're doing it and y- how you see your own profession as being part of the answer to this is, is really massive. I'm, I'm hoping that people can really hear this. And yeah, I was, unfortunately, I was supposed to talk at our, the American Academy of Pediatrics conference. I was so excited. I finally, <sighs> like this was going to be my opportunity. And yeah. of course, coronavirus took a big thump on that. So I'm hoping that maybe if the vaccines work and if we can have another in-person conference coming up and I can get in there, that was my chance like to, to yeah. really express all of this to a crowd of my peers yeah. so that they can know about this. I and mean, we had the opportunity to do it as a virtual where I would have had to record but it was so it would have been so short i would have gotten i felt like 20 minute recording of what i need to say oh no is going to really have the impact that i needed it, that i needed it to have i mean if i get the opportunity next year and it's going to be like this is the only option maybe i'll, I'll try to i'll try to condense it as best i can i was really looking forward to sitting in front of 
people and actually being at the booth and having people mm -hmm. come over and say, I saw your talk or tell me about this. Like what, what does this have to do with us? And unfortunately another, another, another casualty of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what I am excited about is that you are, we here are just hearing like, you know, a bit of your story, but I know that you are, you have a manuscript of your story that you're working yeah. on and, and very close to getting it out there into the world. Can you give a little snapshot of, of what is in there? Sure. So two years ago, I started jotting down notes about why I felt like a book was the natural way, a natural way to do this. But I did not think that my story by itself would fill a book. It's not, you know, what, what occurred with me is a part of a bigger story. Mm -hmm. but I couldn't figure out what that story was going to be. So I guess a bright spot from the pandemic was that I've had a lot more time on my hands. And so I was able to finally put my thoughts down and start writing this thing. It's now, I have a 45,000 word manuscript that I'm putting the finishing touches on. And what the, what I, I've learned to never give guarantees to anybody because <laughs> nothing's ever hundred percent, but I am going to, this is going to get published one way or another. I will find Absolutely. a way to get this thing out there, even if it's just to say that I did it. Yeah. But this is... The way that it currently would be structured is it's, it's roughly in thirds. The first third of the book is a walking, walking people through modern fatherhood because fathers are very different. I'm very different than my dad. The generation that raised us were very, very different in terms of what they viewed as their roles, the way that dual incomes and the way that mm -hmm. you know, women's roles in the family and in society have changed. Fathers have will, very happily taken on a lot more of that responsibility. The problem that I find is that we also have zero idea of what we're doing. And we also, and, and we don't have a history of fathers doing the things that we are attempting to do. Right. You know, I mean, even something as simple as changing diapers, feedings, and getting up in the middle of the night. Those were, my father, my father unfortunately passed away three years ago, but he never did those things. Mm -hmm. Never did those things. Right. So I couldn't go to him and say, dad, what, what did you do? You know, and him be like, oh, I could tell you some stories, nothing. So yeah. we're, we're kind of in uncharted territory. And so the first third of the book lays out how different men are, how fatherhood plays a larger role in our lives, and also to destigmatize or demystify the, the role of, of postpartum mental health disorders in men. In other words, to say that, yeah, these are actually a real thing. Mm -hmm. And let me explain to you why it actually can be some of the exact same things you say it can't be. The middle, the middle third are my, is like the memoir part, which is my background and who I am and where I came from, my experiences with my son and my experiences with my daughter. And then the last third are why dads are very important, why we matter, what yeah. happens if we're, if, what happens to families and children and society when we are not doing very well mentally and then how can we fix this like what like the things that we had just been talking about mm -hmm. and i grant you it's big it's it's cultural it's yeah. medical it's education yeah. it's so many different things but right. the the important thing that i want people to take away from not only our talk here but hopefully if they ever get a chance to read this book is that this is fixable like it's not going to be mm -hmm. tomorrow mm -hmm. but if we put in the effort we can make life better. We, we're a country that talks a good game. 
we, <laughs> we talk a good game that like, oh yeah, we're all about family and we want parents to be able to do this and all stuff. And it's bull because we don't support the things that these people really need. We don't have parental leave. We don't have daycares and we don't have, we don't have universal things that would be so helpful and beneficial. And right. these are, some of these are very expensive. I'm not going to say they aren't, but some of them are actually not expensive. It doesn't cost a lot to screen. It doesn't cost a lot to educate. And yeah. it doesn't cost a lot to share a phone number or a hotline or something with somebody so that they can get help. Yeah. At least not in terms of the, the cost, the, the return on investment on these things are astronomical. You mm-hmm. know, that you, you invest in these type of things. You, you get so much more. Like, I'm a, like I said, I'm a pediatrician. We're all about prevention. It's, it's what mm-hmm. we do, you know, and prevention is always cheaper than treatment. You yeah, don't yeah. want to be treating broken families and, and broken children and all these things when you have a chance of preventing, not all of them, no one says that that's possible, but that we can prevent some of these things and we can make life better for families and for children and for the next generation. Yes, all of this, everything. Well, Thank you, Dr. Levine. That is incredibly hopeful. And and that is, I know, what you want to uh, convey and what I want to convey as well. And for people who are listening to this, who have a spouse, please share this so that they can hear directly from another guy what it can be like so that they can, you know, reach out for help. Um, Dr. Levine, you, you mentioned Postpartum Support International. There's plenty of resources there for men and fathers. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming and sharing all of this wisdom and information and your story and being the the guy that's out there being vulnerable on behalf of other men everywhere. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate all the time. And like I said, I, I hope I hope it does some good. I hope the people who hear this, it continues to spread the word that this is a real thing, but it's it's a thing that we can that that we can fix, that we can help. Really, really powerful story and powerful trajectory towards healing. I am hopeful that all of you who've listened today have learned something new and can be part of the voice for dads, for partners out there who are also suffering and who are also dealing with a very real transition into parenthood. We just have to get the idea out of our heads that any type of mental health conditions or physical conditions for that matter are only happening to the birthing person. Having a child changes relationships and it changes family systems. If we can really start thinking about what the whole family needs, supporting everyone in the system, then the outcomes for everyone, including the child, is way better. I just want to thank you again for listening and being part of the people out there who know that this is real and hopefully who can now Share this podcast episode with families and fathers and people who you know might be experiencing this so they can learn a little bit more and also not feel alone. If this is your first time joining us on the Mom and Mind podcast, thank you for being here with us. And to all of the listeners who show up for all of the other episodes, I'm so grateful that you're continuing to be with us, sharing these podcast episodes, and out there advocating and showing up for parents everywhere. Please do subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, share it with anybody you can. Let's get the word out there. Crush all the stigma that comes along with mental health and mental health for parents so we can get the help that we need and go on to live the lives that we want to live. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.
Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.